1: One of the patients I came across was started on antidepressant a while ago. She was not too motivated to take medication and started experiencing withdrawal symptoms, which totally put her off switching on to another antidepressant. We were trying to find out more evidence into how best we can deal with it and reassure her. Me and my consultant found out that there was scarcity of information on that, which motivated us to give a presentation and share with our colleagues how this was the area that needed more research and more thoughts. The fact is, we
2: probably all know someone who is currently taking antidepressant drugs. In the UK, it's estimated at about one in 10 adults. GPs are giving out more than 50 million prescriptions a year. Here on Naked Neuroscience, we often talk about what's happening in the brain when people are experiencing a difficulty and what medicines perhaps can do to help. But what happens if you're actually looking to step down off of medications like this? This episode, we're taking a slightly different tack and instead thinking about what it's like to come off of antidepressants that, after all, are changing the chemistry inside your brain. There are many questions in this area that we can't currently answer and several questions that I'm afraid we don't cover in the show. But I'll be speaking to several doctors throughout the programme to try and find out more about coming off of antidepressants. First, though, it's time to tuck into some naked neuroscience news with our local experts, perceptual psychologist Helen Keyes from Anglia Ruskin University and cognitive neuroscientist Duncan Astle from Cambridge University. This month, Helen chats about a paper looking at how babies' and adults' brains sync up during face-to-face direct communication. Two-way interaction between an adult and a child is a key part of language development, and this kind of brain sync-up, Helen explains, is pretty observable in outward ways. Think of the last time you chatted with your son or your niece. You might have changed the pitch of your voice, for instance. So, can you see any syncing up in the brain waves? Well, using some rather special
3: little caps, these authors wanted to find out. Functional near infrared spectroscopy records levels of oxygenation um, in the brain. So, we're able to get a good proxy for areas of the brain that are activated in kind of real time. The authors were looking at infants, uh, 9 to 15 months old, and they recruited 42 infants initially. Half of those straight away uh, were too wriggly and had to be excluded. (laughs) And another three of those just refused flat out to wear the cap. So the authors ended up with 18 um, infants in the study. And they had the same adult, the one researcher, interacted with these infants individually for five minutes. So they were reading with them, singing songs, directly interacting. And then in the control condition with the same infant, the adult would be turned away, engaging in stories with another adult. So the infant was still hearing the the adult's voice, but wasn't directly interacting with them. They found that in the face-to-face sessions, the babies and adults' brains synchronised in several areas. But most interestingly, they synchronised in uh, the prefrontal cortex, in areas involved in language processing, perspective taking, and even in prediction of other behaviours. So this area involved in a mutual understanding was highly synchronised. And when the adult was turned away, this synchronisation disappeared almost entirely another interesting finding was that the infant brain often led here so it wasn't just that the infant was passively following what the adult was doing often the infant's brain activity would predict by a few seconds what the adult's brain was going to do so there is this really active feedback loop anticipation and predicting of the other person's behavior it sounds very
2: sensible and it's what I would expect to happen when you're directly communicating with a kid but is
3: is this particularly surprising it's not surprising in that it's what we would often observe in natural interaction between parents and children. We, we get in sync with each other. But this may well turn out to be a nice prediction of things like uh, language development. So hopefully as an extension of this study, the authors might be able to show that this uh, early interactive social communication may well be predictive of language ability in the ways that other observable things are. So a child following pointing behaviour, for example.
2: Duncan.
4: If we took two people and put them in totally separate rooms, sealed rooms, but made them watch the same video of like a facial expression reacting and we looked at what happened in their brains, they would start to do similar things. And we might conclude from that that their brains are in sync. But it's because they're really watching the same sort of visual input. So in this case, you could imagine that if there's general mirroring of behaviour, then you could start to get what looks like syncing of the brain and that's one way of characterizing it but really it's about the kind of mimicking and the mirroring of physical behavior
2: so the kids might just be copying is that what you're saying
4: yeah and vice versa that the parents then copying the kid and vice versa and that that then gives the appearance in the brain activity of a syncing but it's really just each person's brain responding to something quite similar that they're seeing
3: do you think helen that could be the case in this study So firstly, the idea that two people watching something in two different rooms and their brain's having a similar response, they're not really in sync, are they? They're just both responding to the same thing. So there's a a, a huge literature around this showing that those kind of shared responses are really special. They're not shared with each other, but the similar response you and I might have when we understand a situation in a similar way is different from if you and I just heard some random noises playing. So it's not just that your brain is being stimulated, it's that the understanding part of your brain is being stimulated in a similar way to mine. So what this study is getting at is how that develops. So we're not saying that... um, it, there's something about you and I being in the same room as each other that is, is necessarily um, syncing up our brains together. It's how do we develop that shared understanding so that when we do grow up, we might respond in a similar way to each other, a kind of across the spectrum when we have a similar understanding to each other.
2: Helen Keyes there. Now, according to the Collins English Dictionary... Snowflake generation is termed as the generation of people who became adults in the 2010s viewed as being less resilient and more prone to taking offence than previous generations.
4: But the question is, is it true? Is it really the case that as generations are going by, people are getting more hypersensitive?
2: Well, that's the question that the paper Duncan's been looking into for us this month has set out to answer.
4: Hypersensitivity is part of a particular personality trait called narcissism. And so, using some large cohort studies, we can start to ask the question whether it indeed is the case that our level of hypersensitivity changes as we age and whether there have been intergenerational changes in the level of um, hypersensitivity.
2: I'm conscious that narcissism and hypersensitivity can be quite loaded terms. Can you give us the scientific definition of what they mean?
4: In this case, the measure was taken from an in-depth interview and after which the interviewer completed something called the California Adult Q Sort, which is a personality questionnaire. And in it, there were items like, is thin-skinned, sensitive to anything that can be constrained as criticism or a personal slight? And so they have individuals who are aged between 13 And 77 years old. And these are the same individuals that are tracked over time. So it's not massive numbers of people, so it's just over 700 in total. But the exciting thing is that they've tracked them over the lifespan. And because these are taken from different cohorts at different points in time, they can then start to ask their intergenerational question.
2: Oh, I see. So would a 21-year-old in one decade show similar results to a 21-year-old in another decade.
4: Yeah, two separate questions. What's the impact of getting older on your narcissism? And have there been intergenerational changes in the level of narcissism? Okay. So the results are in. Firstly, men are more hypersensitive than women. You may or may not find that surprising. Um, (laughs) And people generally get less hypersensitive as they get older, especially when they get past 40 So you as an individual can expect to get less hypersensitive the older you get. But crucially, hypersensitivity is decreasing across successive generations.
2: That's so interesting. That's not what I thought you were going to say.
4: No, exactly. So counter to the prevailing view of, oh, young people today, they're so sensitive and blah, 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 and snowflake generation. Actually, the data show that the opposite trend is happening.
2: And it's also interesting that you said 40 was the cutoff, because anecdotally, I've heard people say, as I get older, I care less if people think I'm such and such, or the opinions of others about me matters less.
4: That's true. But if you look at the data, there's a particular inflection point at 40. And What happens at 40? I don't know why you suddenly stop caring. I don't know, but that seems to be the critical (laughs) age in the data. But it's also really interesting to think, why is that? Maybe it's that we gradually have more control over our own lives as time goes on. You know, we adjust our own social circles who we follow on social media, the bubbles that we enter ourselves into. So gradually over time, maybe we're less exposed. To views that we find irritating and and personally offensive. Or maybe it's that we generally care less. The older we get, we have more perspective, we have a bit of a broader view on things, and we're less bothered about individual comments.
2: Do we know anything about whether it correlates with life stresses, those like really big events, having children or the death of a parent or, you know, something really monumental?
4: No, we don't. So the, one of the problems with it, these data is so hard to come by that it means that there's not a lot else in there that we know about these individuals. The other interesting finding, I guess, is that the fact that the across generations, people are getting less hypersensitive. And the authors actually don't really provide much of an account for why that could be, but we can all imagine maybe it's... For instance, the advent of the internet being exposed much more regularly to people who might say something to you that's slightly offensive. And gradually over time, you become sort of slightly desensitized to all of that.
2: What do you make of these overall?
4: A really interesting thing is why it contrasts so much with the story that's present in the popular media and that's present in Collins English Dictionary, which is that young adults are gradually becoming more and more sensitive. And people weren't like that in the olden days, because the data actually say the opposite. And I just wonder whether that's because it's easy to dismiss arguments if you can easily dismiss the individual as being too hypersensitive. So we're living through a period of immense change in terms of things like climate change, all sorts of social and demographic changes. And I wonder whether it's easier to dismiss some of the controversies and arguments surrounding that if you can just characterize the people who are espousing those views as being snowflakes.
3: Helen? I think in the context of what you're saying about the popular media and its portrayal of young people as a snowflake generation and and why this might be almost a useful way of dismissing people. I think that's really also interesting in terms of the gender findings that certainly the popular media would portray uh, women as being more hypersensitive or thin skinned when indeed this study shows quite the opposite. And it may link in well there as an easy way to dismiss legitimate points that people are raising.
4: I think one encouraging thing is that the data suggests that people are gradually becoming more accommodating of each other's perspectives. And ironically, probably the people who are most likely to use the term snowflake, according to the data, those are the people who are probably the least accommodating or the most hypersensitive.
2: Duncan Astle there. And if there's some neuroscience news you want us to look at, or you've got a question you'd like us to address, you can email neuroscience at nakedscientists.com.
4: Hiya, I'm Phil Sansom, and I host the Naked Genetics podcast. Genetics is huge right now, from those home DNA testing kits to futuristic gene therapies to treat diseases. And if, like me, you're just trying to get a grip on what genes can and can't tell you, then this might be the show
5: for you. Each month, we are telling scientific detective stories and shining a light in directions you might not expect, like gene sequencing a puppy. Oh, oh, biscuit or maybe tearing apart a flower oh boy you've taken all the parts off well that one i messed up so that shows you how, how good he had to get at this and even drinking a bunch of gin <laughs>
6: very refreshing.
4: don't miss out subscribe to naked genetics wherever you get your podcasts
2: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. Now, unfortunately, we do all probably know someone affected by depression. And antidepressant drugs can be an extremely helpful part of the solution for some people in terms of helping them feel better. But once they've done the job, what happens then? A recent talk by a concerned psychiatrist here in Cambridge got the Naked Scientist's office thinking about what it's like to step down from antidepressant drugs, as, anecdotally, experiences can vary. To be clear, I am not an expert here. So for the rest of this episode, join me as we speak to a range of doctors about this. From a family doctor regularly prescribing these drugs to a psychiatrist concerned about lack of information to a primary care professor with a plan to improve how doctors help people come off of these drugs nationally, maybe even globally. First of all, how does someone end up taking antidepressants in the first place? Adam Murphy spoke to Cambridge GP Sarah Smith. Now, in the UK, up to 40% of GP consultations, Sarah says, are mental health related. So first of all, what, Adam asked, might someone suffering from depression actually be experiencing when they turn up at the doctor's?
6: So an average patient would perhaps come in saying that they're feeling lower in mood. Um, They sometimes are sad and emotional and might be crying more. They can often feel tired and some people don't sleep very well they can have increased or decreased appetite and then with that either some weight gain or some weight loss Um, and often just feel that they're not enjoying things as much less motivated to get things done sometimes feeling more hopeless with reduced self-esteem how would you
5: decide whether or not that person would need say medication for the problem
6: Guidelines suggest that in most cases of mild to moderate depression, we can manage that with some sort of counselling or talking therapy. One problem is that we often don't have enough counsellors or psychologists at our fingertips for someone to be seen within the next two or three weeks. Um, And sometimes you can be on waiting lists for some therapies for several months. Mm. So for some people, they might need a depression medicine to just help prop them up while we're waiting for those other therapies to happen. And then we see some of the more severe depressions where it's appropriate to prescribe an antidepressant straight away.
5: And then, what kind of antidepressants are there that you could prescribe?
6: Nowadays, we tend to use selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRI antidepressants. And they're quite nice because they have less side effects than the older fashioned tricyclic antidepressants that we use historically. We pick and choose SSRI antidepressants depending on what the person's come in to see us with. So we might pick a certain one if they're more depressed and anxious, or if they've got depression alone, obsessive-compulsive disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, we might pick a different one. And then we have others that we might use in cases of anorexia with depression, or in people that are depressed and can't sleep. So we've got several that we can choose from. Do we know much
5: about how these different antidepressants work?
6: Yeah, so the um, more modern SSRI antidepressants help to lift our serotonin levels in our brains up. It's a neurotransmitter chemical in the brain, um, which sends messages from one nerve to another nerve because what happens normally is the serotonin is absorbed back into the cells and what it does is it stops that process from happening so there's more serotonin washing around and sending messages to the right nerve cells in our brain. If we have more serotonin washing around we tend to feel um, more cheerful and upbeat, helps our mood, helps our emotions and helps our sleep.
5: What kind of side effects do people have? And can you like make a path through antidepressants if one isn't working?
6: Yes. So um, we warn people at the very beginning of taking them that they might feel a bit of nausea for the first week or 10 days. They might feel a little bit spaced out and not to worry if those simple things happen because it will pass. We always warn people to come and tell us if they're getting any major side effect problems or if they get an increase or, or sudden onset of any suicidal thoughts. And then we talk those through and then decide whether we need to change their antidepressant. If we've perhaps tried two or three different things and we're still not winning, we might ask the psychiatrist for their opinion and then we can move forward that way.
5: How long would a course tend to be?
6: If we go on to an antidepressant, it's sensible to keep taking it for six months. Studies have shown that if you stop it sooner than six months, you're more likely to have a relapse of your depressed mood. So we tend to advise people that when we're starting them on them as well. And ask people to come back to talk to us if they want to stop them or come off them so that we can plan it carefully.
5: Speaking of that, what is the procedure then when someone wants to or is ready to come off an antidepressant?
6: So people come and have a chat with us and we tend to try and plan a phased reduction of their medication. So if they were taking, for instance, two tablets of a certain antidepressant, we might then suggest they take one for three or four weeks and then perhaps one every other day for a couple more weeks gradually wean them off because that's much better to do it that way with less withdrawal symptoms if they do it sensibly
5: when we're talking about withdrawal what kind of symptoms could people be looking at if they if they went into withdrawal like that from an antidepressant
6: People get a variety of symptoms, Um, they can feel dizzy, tired, Um, they can get blurred vision, sometimes feeling more irritable or anxious. Some people struggle with their sleep and get insomnia, vivid dreams, nausea and sometimes tummy symptoms with diarrhoea or tummy aches. So it's sensible to come and have a chat with your GP or your psychiatrist and just plan to come off them very carefully over a four to six week period um, and then you shouldn't have any problems because the risk if you do stop them suddenly you generally get some withdrawal symptoms within the first five days and if you've been on higher doses of antidepressant medicine that can go on for six weeks Um, so much better to come off them gently and gradually.
2: Thanks Sarah. And Sarah mentioned there that it is possible to come off of antidepressants without experiencing withdrawal symptoms. But for those who do experience problems, what's actually going on in the brain? How many people are likely to be affected by this and why? These questions are just some of the ones that Cambridge psychiatrist Roma riaz would like to know the answer to.
1: Unfortunately, the evidence is only limited. And most of the evidence that we are relying on is anecdotal, coming from influential professionals who have lately come up and shared their own personal experience, how difficult it was for them to come off the antidepressants. Also, some of the surveys that have been done lately to know people's experiences. Yes, there is a difficulty when people stop antidepressants suddenly. However, this is something that can be dealt with and people have come off medication successfully and are living normal day-to-day life. So what rough
2: proportion of the people that you see who are on antidepressants might struggle to come off them?
1: It's hard to put that in numbers, but there are certain factors that influence that. First of all, it varies from person to person. Secondly, A lot of it is to do with how the antidepressants act. Some of the antidepressants take longer time to be released in the blood and are steady for a longer time which causes less of a problem with withdrawal whereas other antidepressants which break down quickly and are quick to release in the blood do not last longer in the blood and are more likely to cause withdrawal symptoms.
2: Do you know who's most likely to struggle? Does it break down by age or gender or
1: anything like that? One of the things that people have experienced is that some of the personal characteristics, such as apprehension around stopping medication, can affect some symptoms of withdrawal. And the little evidence that we have do not support that age is a factor that contributes to it. So generally speaking... If someone has been taking the antidepressant medication for a longer time, the body gets adjusted to that, which would mean coming off as slow as we possibly can to give the body enough time to adapt to the new changes. Do we know anything about whether
2: withdrawal is related to the severity of the depression? Are we just talking about really extreme, severe cases of depression where withdrawal is a problem? Or is it a problem also in
1: milder cases of depression? So far, the limited evidence that we have do not support this. There's no link that has proved to be between the severity of depression to severity of withdrawal symptoms. Can people get hooked on antidepressants? Does
2: dependence or addiction factor in in this conversation?
1: I think to answer that, we need to be very clear about the characteristics of something we can say can cause dependence. First of all, the drugs which cause dependence do cause cravings if they're not taken. Secondly, there's a need to take more in order to get the same effect. Fortunately, with antidepressants, It does not come with those properties, so they do not cause dependence. But I guess... That doesn't necessarily mean there isn't a fear around the subject. I think a lot of fear, generally, patients do express about stopping medication is that firstly, they think the depression would come back. Secondly, a lot of it is to do with the apprehension around withdrawal symptoms, what they might start feeling or experiencing once the medication is stopped. But we as clinicians do empower the patients, try and educate them, try and monitor them to make the right choices
2: But are those symptoms pretty obviously different from relapse into depression? Because I guess that's another thing you absolutely want to avoid if you can.
1: So that's one of the challenges clinically, to differentiate relapse from withdrawal. Now, we know some of the symptoms do overlap, like some of the mood symptoms, cognitive symptoms, some of the physical symptoms. However, what's crucial is that with a withdrawal, the Onset of symptoms is usually within hours rather than days or weeks and also the physical symptoms are more pronounced more distinguished as compared to the relapse but yeah this is one area which needs careful monitoring it needs to be explored more patients need to feel confident the experiences that they are going through what it actually is
2: could you summarize the areas in which you think we really do need to learn more
1: It's from the very basics, really. We need to learn more about what are the mechanisms of action in terms of withdrawing from antidepressants. And I think from a realistic and a practical perspective, as a clinician, I would really like to have more answers to the questions that I get asked about why it's happening, how long it would take, what are the exact guidelines to reduce medication, there's a lot that needs to be explored.
2: Thank you very much, Roma. I just want to pick up on something that was touched on there. We mentioned dependence, and it's an area that deserves further exploration, although sadly, we don't have time in this particular episode. But as GP Sarah Smith mentioned earlier, in the UK, SSRIs are nowadays the most widely prescribed type of antidepressants. And the Royal College of Psychiatrists' recent position statement on antidepressants and depression mentions a systematic review of dependence and addiction for SSRIs that concluded that they are not dependence-producing in the same way that alcohol, stimulants, opioids and benzodiazepines are. This doesn't, however, negate the reported patient experiences of more severe antidepressant withdrawal, but should provide reassurance that antidepressants don't share the addictive properties of known dependence producing drugs. That's from the position statement. And if you'd like to read more, we'll link to this document on the show page for this episode on our website, nakedscientist.com neuroscience. Thanks again to Cambridge psychiatrist Roma riazol And Roma's main hope for more research into antidepressant withdrawal is to empower patients to feel more confident and less fearful about stepping down from these medications when the time is right. So what research is actually being done in this area? I spoke to primary care professor Tony Kendrick. First up, I asked Tony, how much do we actually know about the science behind the withdrawal process from antidepressant drugs?
7: We have quite a lot of evidence, but it's certainly not perfect. We could get more evidence in terms of both the proportion and numbers of people who get problems when they stop antidepressants, and also what's actually going on inside their head when they stop antidepressants. So most of the evidence on the numbers and proportion of people who get problems is from surveys usually asking people after the event whether they had problems, rather than real-time measurement of a whole representative sample of people taking antidepressants as they come off them. And we really don't understand what's going on inside the brain when somebody comes off antidepressants, having been on them for some months and certainly years. There are probably changes in the brain which take some time to return to normal, and some people even fear that they might not return to normal at all, in in a few cases where people have been taking antidepressants for many years.
2: So I think about one in 10 UK adults are currently being prescribed these drugs. Is that about right?
7: Yes. In fact, the Public Health England survey suggested that at any one time, more than 7 million people were taking antidepressants. Over a three-year period from 2015 to 2018, it was getting on for a million who were taking it for long-term use.
2: Okay, so do we know how many of those people might struggle with coming off them?
7: The best evidence we have is that as many as a one in two people, uh, around 50% of people will get some withdrawal symptoms and of those around a half might find them quite troubling. That may be an overestimate because it's based partly on uh, internet surveys and we know that the people who reply to internet surveys tend to be those who've had more of the problem. But it's certainly a good proportion of people and therefore it needs to be taken seriously. Antidepressants should not be stopped suddenly because the likelihood of withdrawal symptoms is much greater. They should be tapered off. And if people get problems, they should be able to discuss that with the prescriber, ask whether they need to go more slowly or even go back up to the previous dose. And in some cases, probably a small minority, people find it quite hard to come off at all.
2: So do we know anything about the factors that might make that withdrawal more difficult, that half of the half of people you were talking about?
7: Some of the drugs have a what's called a shorter half-life. They don't stay in the body for so long. So when you stop them, the level of drug in your bloodstream and in your brain drops quite quickly and that gives more withdrawal symptoms so drugs like paroxetine and venlafaxine are well known to be more likely to cause withdrawal so certainly by drug type probably by um, length of taking the antidepressant the longer you've been on them probably the more likely it is that you'll get withdrawal but as, as we haven't done systematic studies of taking people off antidepressants at different intervals of time we can't be sure about that but certainly it does seem and we we advise caution when someone's been on antidepressants for certainly more than a few months and that the 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 tapering should be carefully monitored in case uh, they get withdrawal symptoms
2: what is the motivation to come off if you're feeling better you may want to stay on them
7: Yes, that's why we're getting so many people now who are taking antidepressants long term because they feel a certain fear that if they stop them they might get depressed again and they feel, well, if I'm okay on taking these then I'll continue them and their doctor may well go along with that as well. Neither the patient nor the doctor wants to risk having a relapse of depression which can be catastrophic in somebody's life and so the, the kind of default position has been to continue them. But the problem with that is that we don't really know how long they're beneficial for. And we also are starting to recognise more and more side effects, some of which can be quite serious.
2: So how easy is it to tell if someone's ready to come off them or not?
7: Well, the current guidance is rather grey. The current recommendation from NICE, the National Institute for Care and Health Excellence, is... For the first episode ever of depression that's treated with antidepressants, you can probably come off after feeling well for about six months. So if it takes a few months to get better and then you continue them for six months, you probably should come off after about nine months or certainly within the first year and try doing without them. With recurrent depression, the recommendations are that antidepressants should be continued for two years in the first instance before then reviewing them and possibly trying to come off them. But the evidence behind that two years is not very strong. More research is needed. But what we do know is that more than half the people on antidepressants have been on them for more than two years, and some of them have been on them for decades. And we really don't know that that's doing them any good. The reason for continuing them for two years is that we want to try and prevent them getting depressed again. And studies up to two years have shown that if you stop them, you are more likely to get more depression. But many people can stop them without getting more depression. The worry is that with longer and longer use, you'll get more side effects. And the type of antidepressant that's mostly in use these days, the Prozac type antidepressants, we've had them since the late 80s, early 90s. But it's only in recent years that we've started to see more and more side effects emerge. And some of those side effects can be relatively serious in a small minority of people.
2: From my conversation with Tony, there seem to be two problems coming to the fore. One, a significant number of people experience difficulties coming off these drugs. And two, perhaps some people are on them without getting benefit because they're worried about coming off. Tony is part of a study trying to better this situation. The Reviewing Long-Term Antidepressant Use by Careful Monitoring and Everyday Practice Study, luckily termed REDUCE for short, is based at the University of Southampton. And it's asking whether internet and telephone-based psychological support for patients stepping down from antidepressants, as well as internet guidance for the GPs supporting them, could be of benefit.
7: So the support for patients is twofold. It's internet support we have a new program we've developed with patients called advisor which is advice about antidepressants and we have put cognitive therapy and mindfulness-based therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy type interventions into that online support psychological interventions can help people come off antidepressants and reduce the risk of relapse. The second type of support for patients is phone calls from a psychologist to ask them how they're doing while they come off the antidepressant um, and check that they're having symptoms of withdrawal or symptoms of depression coming back and encouragement to continue with the withdrawal as long as all is well. And then also support for the doctors. There's a separate program called Advisor for Health Professionals and that's internet guidance on different schedules for tapering off the drugs, advice on timing the start of reduction and information about the online and telephone support for patients so that the GPs can direct patients to the support.
2: It sounds like quite a lot of this includes education for healthcare professionals on this topic. Is it fair to say that perhaps that's been a, a bit lacking so far?
7: To be fair to the health professionals, the guidelines have been inadequate, We are currently updating NICE guidance. Uh, There's been more guidance coming out of other countries like Holland, the Netherlands, and and Australia. Different countries are developing more guidance. So there's been a lack of clear guidance on how best to take people off long-term antidepressants. Also, these days, general practices are so busy, as, as you will know if you've tried to make an appointment recently. The extra work involved in taking someone off antidepressants Unfortunately, the easiest thing to do is to continue to prescribe the antidepressant. And if the patient feels that they don't want to try coming off and the doctor doesn't want to rock the boat, then that tends to be the default position in many cases.
2: Do you have any promising results? How confident are you that these strategies will work?
7: We don't have any results in terms of how effective this strategy is. We have done a feasibility trial. We engaged 50 patients and their GPs in that. And we showed that it was uh, acceptable to patients. They liked getting involved. They liked having the internet support and the telephone support. Uh, therefore, that the, the method is acceptable and feasible. We have to continue the trial for the next three years and involve altogether about 400 people before we'll know whether it's really more effective than simply prompting the GP to review the patient
2: understandably we've got a UK focus in this conversation but the podcast is a global one and the problem is a global one as well isn't it so do you think your study might have applications beyond the UK?
7: It is a global issue certainly in all the developed countries where people have looked at this the number of people on antidepressants is increasing there's even greater proportion in America taking antidepressants, but it's also an issue in Holland, Australia, all all the Western countries where it's been studied. There's a team that we're working with in Melbourne who are doing something similar to us with nurse-led intervention in general practice to help people come off. There's a Dutch group that's uh, doing a lot of work on it as well. Anywhere where people speak English could potentially benefit from our internet support. Telephone support would obviously have to be developed in each country.
2: Antidepressant drugs are just one way of treating depression, as talking therapies, lifestyle medicine might be another. Do you think generally we've got the balance right in terms of drugs compared to other strategies?
7: No, and I don't think many people would think we've got it right. 80% of people who are diagnosed with depression of significant severity get antidepressants in general practice. Really, it's not the recommended first treatment by any means. NICE recommends um, guided self-help and psychological treatments before drug treatment. Unfortunately, it's often a long wait to get this sort of help. What we urge our students and trainees and GPs generally to do is, is to try and hold off from prescribing antidepressants, give people a chance to recover through talking it over, getting some support from their family, from their community and from the doctor, maybe from the pharmacist, and hold off for some weeks if possible. It's more difficult if people have had depression before, they've had antidepressants before and they come asking for them again. But even then it's worth checking back and thinking, did they really need to have the antidepressants in the first place? If we can put fewer people on antidepressants, that would be a good thing generally, um, because many of the, those people will benefit from other types of support and can improve without drug treatment. If we are starting drug treatment, we should warn them about the possibility of problems when they try to stop them.
2: Tony Kendrick there. And if you'd like more information about the reduced trial, we'll link to the Southampton University webpage on this episode's show page on our website, nakedscientist.com neuroscience. It's clear there's still a lot more research required on problems around stepping down from antidepressant medication. And hopefully studies like Reduce and others will continue to inform the medical community of the best ways to assist people making this transition. Thank you to all of our guests this month, Sarah Smith, Romo riazul Haq, Tony Kendrick, Helen Keyes and Duncan Astle. If you'd like to find out more about depression, perhaps you'd like to visit the uk mental health charity mind's website mind.org.uk if you need someone to talk to you can call the samaritans on 116 123 from the uk or their website is samaritans.org thank you so much for listening we'll be back next time with more naked neuroscience if you want to get in touch it's neuroscience at nakedscientist.com I've been Katie Haler from the Naked Scientist team. Until next time, goodbye.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.